Let's read together Judges chapter 4. I'm starting in verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Remember Ehud as we looked at last week. And the Lord sold them, that is the people of Israel, into the hand of Jabin the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Canaan, Israel, different countries. Okay, The Canaanites are not Israelites. It's just important to know. The commander of his, that is Jabin's, army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. Naphtali and Zebulun are two of the twelve tribes of Israel. So these are Israelites, okay? It's important to know. And I, this is God, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you, that is Barak, by the river Kishon, and his chariots and his troops, and I, that is God again, will give him into your Barak hand. And Barak said to her, that is Deborah, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out to Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And ten thousand men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now... Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zaananim, which is near Kadesh. Now that sounds like a rando comment. It, is, it seems like it doesn't fit in the story, but like any good storytelling, there's a little bit of foreshadowing going on. So we're going to come back to verse 11 in just a moment. Verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera in all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. There it is. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. 
And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan, and they destroyed Jabin the king of Canaan. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is God's word, as crazy as it sounds, as crazy as it may be, and it's given to us for our instruction and for our hope. And so let's pray and ask him to help us to understand it. Lord, we ask that you would help us tonight. We come from all over the map, some of us having known you for quite some time. We're excited to be here tonight, and others of us, Lord, not quite sure what to make of you. We are searching, we are asking questions, we are wondering if you really would care about somebody like us, if you knew what we really had done, would you still want us? And yet, O oh Lord, uh, the grace of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come for sinners. And so we pray that you would help us to see that tonight, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for giving me a few moments to run through that text with you as it is a little bit convoluted, but it's so important that you understand you know, the different players and what all is going on. In 2004, uh, I was living in St. Louis. Were you there at uh, Covenant yet, uh, Ada? Yeah. Okay, one more year. All right, so anyways, uh, I was living in St. Louis, and an amazing event happened in the fall. It was in October. Something was unfolding historically that was amazing. It was the first time in 86 years that the Boston Red Sox were going to win the World Series. And uh, I remember watching that game. I remember watching game four of that series. Uh, I was watching on television at this time, and I was... I was amazed that I was watching history unfold right in front of me. And then, here's the thing. Last fall, I got to watch another amazing World Series unfold. Sorry for the sports uh, references, but here they are. In 2016, the Chicago Cubs beat the Cleveland Indians. I know if you're even an Indians fan, that's very, very sad. Um, But they won the World Series for the first time in 108 years. It's crazy. But here's what I really think is important. The 86-year streak that was broke by the Boston Red Sox in in 04 and the 108-year streak that was broken by the Cubs in 16 had something in common. Now, on the surface, it looked like it was these amazing stories of these amazing players coming together, working together a team to snap the streak. And you know what? That was actually true. But do you know the man behind, the general manager behind the Boston Red Sox at that time, And the manager behind the Chicago Cubs at that time was the exact same guy, and his name is Theo Epstein. And I think that's really impressive because it shows you that behind the players on the field, there was somebody sort of working, orchestrating, putting together the perfect players to bring a championship home. What does that have to do with anything that we're looking at in Judges? Well, you heard the script tonight. You read it. You see the different players on the stage and what all is going on. But you must, must remember... 
that one of the things that Judges wants to tell you is that the hero of the story of the book of Judges is God. Did you catch it? At the very beginning, it says that God was the one working. At the very end of the story in the text, we see that God was the one that, that subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to remember that the book of Judges, we're looking at this from a 30,000 foot view tonight. And the book of Judges is going to show you that despite the, 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 the faithlessness of God's people, that God still works, that He is still on mission, that He made a promise to Abraham many, many years ago when He said, I will make you my people and I will be your God. And when you begin to read the book of Judges, you can't help but wonder, how in the world are you going to do this, God? These people are absolute hacks. They can't get anything right. I mean, you read it. Do you not just feel the monotony of their sin at the beginning of the chapter? And the people again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's like every time they get rescued, they go back to their vomit. It's like every time they get delivered, they forget the grace that's been given to them. Here's my hope for you tonight. If you find yourself in that same story, where you have been a recipient of God's grace in your life, but you find it so back easy to go back to the things that are killing you that I think this has really, this is, a, this is going to be a great, great, you need judges for. Well, we're going to see tonight that God is on the prowl. He is moving and he actually uses these sorts of people. We're going to take a look tonight at the sort of people that God uses to accomplish his purposes in the world. And the first, the very first that we're going to take a look at is the unwavering leader. The unwavering leader. Is that up there, Aaron? Great. Uh, there we go. Boom. There it is. The unwavering leader. And we're going to look primarily at the person, Deborah. Who was Deborah? Well, Deborah was a prophetess. Did you see that there? Which means that she was the mouthpiece of God. Now, listen, it's very important that you know this, that prophecy was less about fortune telling and more about foretelling the counsel of God. That Deborah, as a prophetess, were primarily, she was primarily tasked with calling God's people back to covenant faithfulness, to embrace from the heart the salvation that God had given to them in repentance and faith. And you know what? This was a job that you did not want. It, you, know, I, you know, in some circles in the church today, like to be a prophet is kind of like cool and like mysterious and stuff. But I think that there really is, there's a, there is a, 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 a very firm word from the Lord on what gets taken up in that regard. And here's why. Go ahead and go to the next screen, Aaron. You didn't want to be a prophet in those days. And here's why. Because in the book of Deuteronomy, you found out what happens if you weren't so good at being a prophet. Does that make sense? Here's what he says. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, well, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? Here's the answer. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is the word that the Lord has not spoken. What's the writer saying in Deuteronomy? If you're a prophet and you offer up a prophecy that does not come true, do you know what your punishment is? You die. Because you should not have said that. And I think that the point is here is I'm trying to show you that to be a prophet was a big deal. And here's what's so important for Deborah's case. She spoke with faithfulness. She was somebody who knew the counsel of the Lord. And she spoke faithfully 
in her office is doing it. In fact, she's the only one of the judges that we see that is shown a completely good light in the book of Judges. Well, listen, did you notice who she spoke against, who she spoke about? This character named Jabin and this character named Sisera. And we're going to come back to them in just a moment. But I just want you to see, I want you to begin to get a sense of the rising tension. She has spoken to this general named Barak. And we're going to learn more about him in just a second. But I need to drive this home for for just uh, a quick moment. Here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that in RUF, we talk a ton about God's grace. We talk about this being a place for broken men and women to come and to receive God's kindness and grace and they can rest in Him. And you know what? That is 100% true. But what I want you to begin to sense from the prophetess Deborah and others like her throughout the Old and the New Testament is this picture of faithfulness. And that God uses the faithfulness of His people to accomplish His purposes. That is very, very critical. Because I think what we can often think is, is that how in the world am I supposed to live if I'm somebody that is a Christian or is in fellowship with God? And I just want to say that God really does care about our faithfulness and about our obedience. You see, our obedience is not something that ever merits God's favor. He doesn't look at your obedience. He doesn't look at your faithfulness and go, ah, he or she now has won my acceptance and my favor by their faithfulness. No, that is patentedly not Christianity. Rather, God's favor always precedes. God's saving grace always precedes in the life of an individual. And then obedience and faithfulness are the fruit of that salvation worked out in the lives of His people. I just want to say this. The faithfulness of God's people is, very, is, is incredibly important for the advance of God's mission in the world. All of us have had mentors. All of us have had people that we can look up to and say, you know what, if, if so-and-so was not faithful, I don't know if I would be here today. And I can tell you, I've got a roommate in the past. I had a former campus minister. I've had dear friends. I've got a wife. I've got people who are trying to walk with the Lord. And because of their faithfulness, God's mission is advancing in my life. Is faithfulness the same as perfection? Heck no. That's not what we're getting at. But it is, it, is, it is seeking to love God through a life of faith and repentance. So the question is just very simple, friends. What about you? Where do you see this Deborah-esque faithfulness being fleshed out in your life if you're someone who takes the name of Christ? Do you have a God that, speak, that speaks to you in His Word and that we say, it's a, it's a joy, it's a pleasure, O oh Lord, to, to follow you. That's the first thing I want to get across, an unwavering leader. But there's more. And here's hope for us. There's hope in this next point. Because the second point is, is that we also see an unconvinced leader in the person of Barak. Now look, Barak, there is this before and after Barak. We want to take a look at it. This is where the details of the text get really good. You heard that Deborah has said that I'm going to draw, God is going to draw out uh, the army of Sisera, this, this general, and basically Barak, you're going you're gonna, to gonna, rout him. But the glory is not going to come to you. It's going to be coming to somebody else. Now, let's take a look and piece this out. She speaks to him the direct word of God, and he hears it, and Barak basically says, ah, uh, he hesitates. He says, I want you to go with me. 
He had a clear and present word from the prophetess Deborah to go and to be obedient. And he hesitated. He wavered. He faltered. And because of that, Deborah promises him, the glory that could have been yours, Barak, is now going to go to someone else. Now let's take pause for a minute because I need to tell you a little bit about who Sisera was. Sisera was the general of about 900 chariots, which means it was, those were like the tanks of the day. That was an incredible military force. And against 10,000 men, 900 chariots would have been absolutely nothing. It would have been nothing. But we see that God will, is, is beginning to set the stage for something amazing. The other thing that you need to know about Sisera is this. He was a cruel man. Remember I told you about chapter 5 of, uh, of Judges. In chapter 5, there's the song, and, and, and Sisera has been out in battle. And you can read about it in chapter 5, verse 30. And the image is of Sisera's mother waiting for Sisera to return from battle. And she says, have they not already given out the spoils of, of war? And it's interesting what she names the spoil as. And I want you to listen if you can stomach it. She says, a womb or two for every man. The spoils of war were Israelite women. A womb or two for every, every man on the battlefield. And I want you to get to see, I want you to see that, that that is the sort of man that God is out to say, I will deliver my, my justice upon his head. God is out to do that. And he's out to do that through, through Barak. But at first, Barak wavers. He hesitates. And then, to be fair, in verse 14, afterwards, after, after Deborah says, up, oh, now it's time to go, he ends up going. He ends up heading out. And I want you to see this, that there is profound hope here in the midst of his initial resistance to do that. The idea of an unconvinced leader, a wavering, a faltering as it were, I think resonates with who we are. Listen, here's the question I want to ask you guys. Have you ever been a place in your life where you know God is telling you, you ought to live an X, Y way or do a Z, you know, thing? How do you respond to that? How will you respond to that? Barak has given us an example here of what not to do. That if God says to do something, faithfulness demands that we would do it. Now, that's very, very critical because if you're like me at all, you hear God tell you to do something and go, nah, I don't want to do that. No thanks. And I want you to see that like when you do that, you are now putting your counsel, your mind of things above God's. And what you're basically saying is, is that I'm going to piecemeal the Bible to keep the Bible like I want it. You're going to end up with a Thomas Jefferson Bible. Y'all know what that is? He cut out all the parts that he didn't like. He just got rid of them. And the idea is, is that do you have a God, therefore, that will actually disagree with you? If you do, there's good news. It means that you're dealing with the God of the Bible. But if you have a God that always is pandering to you, that's always bowing down to you, guess what you have? You have a God of your own making. And you're really just worshiping, bowing down to yourself. Having nobody that can disagree with you. And what this text is showing us is that the idea is, is that God is calling us into faithfulness and we're seeing a negative example right there in the person of Barak. Well, I think we need to keep moving because this is where the text kind of gets good. We're going to take a look as well, 
thirdly, at this idea of the unlikely outsider. But before we do there, I'm going to run through a few of the details of the text for you to kind of get a sense of what's going on. Look with me what's happening here. Did you see what happened? Basically, the armies meet, right? In verse 12, Sisera's army is told that Barak the son had gone up and he calls out all of his chariots and all of the men who were with him, and they begin to fight against these 10,000 troops. And in verse 15, you see it in your Bible if you've got it. And the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. The reason is, first, uh, chapter 5 tells us that God sends this massive, massive rain. And guess what happens? That the wheels of the chariots start getting stuck in the mud. And when they do, the infantry of God's people is able to put to the sword those riders and to destroy to a man, the text says, the army of the Canaanites. And what you're beginning to see now, if you're reading this text with open eyes, you're going, all right, you know, Jabin's general is about to get it. I can sense it. I can feel it. Where is he? Your eyes are scanning. You're saying, where's Sisera? Because that was the promise that Sisera was going to die. And then you read what? Then Sisera fled away on his foot. And you go, what? He gets away? Are you kidding me? God made a promise. God spoke through Deborah that he was going to be handed over in his hand. Oh, almost, and he gets away. And it's at that moment that this interesting character just sort of enters the scene. This woman named Jael. And that's what we take a look at now at this unlikely outsider. So here we go. Sisera's on the loose. We don't know where he is. Jael enters the scene. You can begin to see how this is turning into a good story. Here's what we know about Jael. Jael, the text tells us, was a Kenite. Now, a Kenite was not an Israelite. She was a, a Gentile as well. And it tells, that, tells us that the Kenites and the Canaanites were in league with one another. They were allies. And what we see is, is that Jael is going to act as a turncoat and she's going to be faithful to the purposes of the God of the Bible over against the Canaanite people. And that's what we get with an unlikely hero. First of all, I'm sorry, ladies, you were not seen in great light back then. You were seen as lesser than. And so because of that, to see this text and to see a woman being a hero is quite impressive. It's quite an indictment on Barak, frankly. To die at the hand of a woman was an incredibly shameful thing. But what happens? Well, here's what happens. She says she sees Sisera, maybe from his insignia. I don't know. Maybe there's blood on his, on his clothes. Who knows? But he comes up to her tent and recognizing him somehow, the text doesn't tell us. She says, turn aside, my Lord, come into my tent. Now, some people think that that's a really sexual innuendo there. I don't think so. I think what's happening there is this motherly presence of hospitality saying, come in, come take rest here. I can see that you're exhausted. And so she gives him uh, milk to drink as well as this sign of hospitality. And he basically says this, listen, if anybody comes asking for me, please, please, please tell them no, that no one is in here. And what happens as, she, as he falls asleep? She grows and grabs a tent peg, think like railroad spike, grabs a mallet, places the thing gently upside his temple, and drives the thing all the way through his skull to which it says that the tent peg goes all the way down to the ground. 
And what you need to begin to sense is that the salvation, the rescue, what was the promise that Deborah made? God will deal with Sisera. And now you go, ah, I never saw that coming. I mean, yeah, there was the promise that, she, that he would be handed into the hand of a woman, but I was thinking it was maybe going to be Deborah. But the surprise is, is that it's Jael and that God made good on his promise. And here's what I want you to begin to see as we sort of begin to wrap up. I want you to see that God always, always, always is using outsiders. Think about it. How many of you remember the story of Rahab the Canaanite? Her being used, the outsider, to accomplish God's purposes. What about Ruth? How many of you know the story of Ruth? Does anybody know the story of Ruth? Ruth was not a Jew. Ruth was a Moabite. And she was used massively in the story of God. Let's advance a little bit. For historians out there, anybody heard of Cyrus the Great? He was a Persian king. God used him to send his people, the Israelites, back into the promised land. And then once we get into the New Testament, do you know who one of the foremost persecutors of the Christian faith was during the first century, right when it was starting out? It was a man named Saul who would eventually become the Apostle Paul. Saul was a terrorist. It is perfectly appropriate to think of him being a terrorist, killing Christians, because that's what he participated in. God's always using outsiders. He's always using the least expected to do that. And that means that God is never, ever afraid to take the people that you least expect to be included in His purposes, to be, to be recipients of His grace. I want to read this. How many of you have ever heard of a man named Simon Greenleaf? Simon Greenleaf was the, uh, is a distinguished law professor at, the, at Harvard University. And he once thought that Christianity was, quote, a silly myth. But some of his law school students who were Christians challenged him to examine Christianity's truth claims. And he wrote a lengthy essay called An Examination of the Testimony of the Four Evangelists by the Rules of Evidence Administered in Courts of Justice. He's basically saying, I'm going to look at this from a historical case as we look un- unravel it all. In which he concluded, quote, It was impossible that the apostles could not have persisted in affirming the truths that they had narrated had not Jesus Christ actually risen from the dead. A Harvard professor, an atheist, converted. How many of you know the name Rosaria Butterfield? She was a progressive lesbian professor at Syracuse University. And she says this, as a leftist lesbian professor, I hated Christians. The next sentence, and then I became one. My point, if you were a Christian, who, who have you written off? Who have you written off as beyond the reach of God's grace? Who have you given up on or turned disinterested to? You know, I don't know who that is, but maybe, maybe they just need someone in their lives to winsomely, respectfully, and lovingly engage them in conversations of faith. Look, we all need help. And this is part of our Christian calling. And I want to say this to you. If you are one of those people in this room tonight, I want you to know that RUF is a place where you can come and explore the truth claims of Christianity. This is not a place where everybody has got everything figured out. This is a place where your doubts are welcome. Your questions are welcomed here. And you can certainly explore them in the context of community, meeting with the interns, meeting with me. I would love to do that. 
And here's what I want you to see if you are not a Christian today and you are somebody here exploring. I want you to say this, hear this. Maybe would you consider that you have not rejected Christianity? Can I say that? But likely, what I find over and over again is that people have rejected a caricature of Christianity. They have not rejected Christianity. They have rejected a caricature of Christianity, which means you may not have rejected Christianity at all. Here's where the crux of Christianity lies. It's not with sexual ethics. It's not about gender. It's not about homosexuality. It's not about public policy. It's not about politics. It's actually not about art or government at all. Here's where the crux of Christianity lies. Ready? Did a dead Jew come out of a grave? Is that a historical fact? Did that happen or not? You see, it's as, it's as real of a historical fact. Either it happened or it didn't. Either, like the same way, either Washington was the United States' first president or not. Either the Pats won the Super Bowl last week or not. Either a dead man walked out of a grave or he didn't. That's the question. It's rooted in history first. History. And I would just simply say, if you don't believe that, how do you know it? Maybe you have examined it. Or maybe you've never done that. And you need to explore it. There are, read, study, come and talk to me. I'd be happy to do it with you together. Here's my hope for you. That you will begin to see tonight that many people who I have talked to, it is not so much that they have rejected Christianity, but instead they have rejected some caricature of it. What does all this have to do with God's mission in the world and God rescuing His people? Well, I need to land the plane. But I'm going to tell you one little quick story as I do. Um, in 2011, I think it was, I'm going to brag on my alma mater, the University of Tennessee. Um, the game before this particular game, Tennessee was playing Middle Tennessee State University. And the game before that, their place kicker uh, had had injured his leg and he could not kick. And so they were going with their backup kicker. And um, the, about an hour before the kickoff, the backup kicker pulls his hamstring in warm-ups and everybody's starting to go berserk. And they're like, we don't have a kicker. And the coach, Coach Dooley, who thank goodness he is no longer there, um, <laughs> he, um, he begins to panic because, here it is, ready? The mission for the day is we need to win this football game and we might need a kicker to do that. So here's what happens. Not kidding you. They say, where's Brodus? Where's Brodus? And like somebody called Brodus. And so this kid named Derek Brodus was in a fraternity house taking a nap after going into like a potato chip coma as he was getting ready to watch the football game and watching football all day like all of y'all do. And he gets a phone call, and it's the director of football operations, and the guy says, Brodus, are you sober? <laughs> and he says, yeah, I'm sober. He says, are you sure you're sober? Yes, I'm sure I'm sober. How can you prove it to me that you're not sober? I'm not 21 yet. Okay, the cops are coming for you. We have to have you in this game. They go and get this kid who... It doesn't even play for the team to come and kick. They end up winning. He ends up kicking like three or four field goals. He gets the game ball. What's my point? 
I want you to see this. Why do I tell that story? So go vote. Um, the point is this. Do you know, do you see yourself, do you see yourself as part of a mission that God Himself is on? And that God Himself is using you in to accomplish His purposes. That He will work with you. He will work in spite of you. But the point is, is that God is the one that is at work. And I just want to say, do you know that the great privilege that is being a part of that mission? How can we know that He will do this? Well, we know it because there is one who has come. We know there is one that has come that has come to take our punishment, to take the judgment for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That He is the one that has bled and died for you. That He is the one that has come to rescue you and to give you new life again. That you might be on mission with Him. Look, this might not be that enticing of a sermon. This text has got its problems, its ups and downs, it's hard and confusing. And I, nobody knows that better than me tonight, okay? But I want you to see that God really is at work. That God really, God really is, even right now, working to draw you in to further to know him and so consider that an invitation tonight to see him to embrace him to believe in him let's pray